Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as a means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Nerdy About Nature podcast. My name is Ross. I'm your host. And today's guest, uh, good friend of mine, I know him from the ski industry, Leslie Anthony. He is an author, a biologist, a herpetologist, which is somebody who studies reptiles and amphibians. But today, we're talking all about invasive species. Um, He wrote a book about invasive species, so we're talking all about what they are, where they come from, how they get around, the damage they cause, and the things that you and I and the rest of society can do to help stop their spread and protect these magnificent ecosystems that we love so much. Now, like most of these conversations here on the Nerdy But Nature podcast, um, it meanders quite a bit. So I guess I just like to offer a bit of an apology in advance to all the cat lovers out there, because towards the end of the episode, we have some very strongly worded opinion based in fact regarding cats, specifically outdoor cats. Um, so if you you have a cat, it's worth sticking around to hear that message at the end, because cats. They're pretty brutal. Cats are pretty brutal. Um, And then from there, it kind of actually goes into a pretty fun, kind of morbid, would you rather. It's worth sticking around, hanging out for uh, some good good food for thought. Anyway, without any further ado, here is that episode with uh, Leslie Anthony. Cue that theme music. Here we go. I did the sun tracker app, though. We've only got about 30 minutes when it's in that gap, and then we're in the shade again. <laughs> so, Let's go. All right. Well, <laughs> welcome to the Nerdy About Nature podcast. Um, yeah, stoked to have you on, man. It's been a yeah. while. Yeah, I figured I'd get some mileage out of my nerdiness at some point oh. in life. So <laughs> You're probably, you're easily in I'm like... stoked to be here. You're in the top... Um, probably no, no, top don't five, go down or ten, there. five or ten nerds that I know personally. I'd say you're way up there. Oh, God. Um, do you want to start by just giving us a little bit of an introduction? Who are you and what makes you so nerdy? Oh, my God. I, you're supposed to be introducing me. You, no, you want I, me to introduce myself? Yeah, I want oh. you to tell people what you do. God. Uh, well, my name's Leslie Anthony, and uh, I consider myself a writer, and I suppose... Most people would know me from that. Um, I write a lot of uh, action, adventure, travel kind of stuff, um, and a lot of science and environment. And the reason for that is that my background is actually as a biologist. So, full nerd there. (laughs) Full nerd. (laughs) Spent 25 years in school. studying zoology and genetics and biogeography. And um, you're a herpetologist by trade, or 
Is that yeah. kind of your speci- specialization? Exactly. If you have anything to do with reptiles and amphibians, you get labeled a herpetologist because, you know, it's one of these sort of small clans that loves to enlist new people. So let's say you're a geneticist, really, but you happen to be looking at genes that have something to do with limb regeneration, which is Common a thing trait that with... newts right. can do, but not too many other organisms. Well, then you're a herpetologist by association. Yeah. Uh, I personally worked uh, with uh, unisexual salamander complexes, all these weird hybrids with different numbers of sets of chromosomes that they shouldn't have and that kind of stuff. But I was always a herpetologist as a kid. I was into frogs, snakes, yada, yada, yada. Um, and the, the thing about being a herpetologist is it doesn't matter whether you're working on crocodiles or frogs or turtles, you will always be guilty by association with the snake freaks. So you'll tell someone you're a herpetologist, they'll go, oh, snakes. And you're like, no, no, salamander chromosomes. Right. But that, but never mind. It's just like the balding guy with a ponytail and a big anaconda <laughs> on his shoulders. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. These guys. Everybody are, knows that okay. guy. Everybody's seen him. Like okay. you. That's another handicap of being a herpetologist is they associate you with those guys yeah. who are the herpeticulturalists, the people who raise snakes and make designer pythons you know the blonde pythons or the ghost pythons or... oh that's a thing oh yeah all these weird patterns oh. you've never seen these in pet stores i have i didn't realize that they were designer that they were they were like oh. bred to look like that oh yeah 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 no this is a herpeticulturalist like they there's massive uh these are basement dwelling people yeah yeah but there's massive conventions you can go to and you go into them and there's just all these freaky snakes and lizards that have all been bred to have patterns that aren't natural aren't found in the wild you know, the the uh, albino genes are favored. The melanistic genes are favored. If, if you have a snake that has five colors in it, there will be five versions of that snake available, each one in a different color. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought. Um, yeah. Okay. So but let's get back uh, right, to... Because we're going to talk about that another time. We're yeah, talking exactly. today about invasive species. And hey, check it out. Guess what's coming down the railway here? Oh, a vector. A big old... An invasive species vector, also known as a train. Yeah, so for those of you who are um, not watching this, we're actually posted up alongside of a Canadian National Railway here. And today's subject is invasive species, and this is a great talking point. And right on time, we have a train meandering about. I think the audio is going to be all right. It'll be be okay once this guy gets past us. Right. And uh, we should have known this was happening because the little... uh, Scout truck just came right. by about 15 minutes ago, which they—that's a job I've always wanted to look into. By the way, to be the guy who drives the track before Ex- the train comes. Yeah, because yeah, like they must see some shit, right? Because their job is to clear the tracks. Right. So you know they are the people who find the grizzlies who are feeding on the grain that falls off the trains and the trees that fall over and all that kind of stuff. I've always wondered how steering works in those things because you're just. They're on the tracks, and you just you just hit the gas, and it just takes you where you go. I think so because yeah. those those rail wheels come down, right? And they don't. But turn. the tires are still on the tracks, though. That's what moves it along the track. Yeah, I think fascinating. The, it just well, so gets, you see what I mean? Like, like someone yeah. needs to check this out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but anyway, where are my train spotting friends at? Trains, train tracks, right of ways, like 
rail right-of-ways and electrical right-of-ways are probably the places where you will find the most invasive species, and that's how they mostly move around. So... And so I wanted to bring you on to talk about this today, you of all people, because you've written a book about it, The Aliens Among Us. So, yeah. we, so we started getting into you getting in, you into writing, and then you do science writing as well from your background of biology. How did you get into writing about science? Well, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was, you know, writing on the side. And um, I've, I've been a writer for quite a while, but... Uh, I guess I started, uh, you know, making money writing about sciencey things for magazines like, you know, cottage magazines and things like that. I mean, you know, I had to write scientific papers and everything as a scientist, but I was I was writing popular stuff about hiking and canoeing and skiing. So I was like, oh well, can I write popular stuff about something I actually know about, which is, you know biology and this kind of stuff, environmental things. And, uh, and I could, so I was kind of had a little sideline making a bit of money on the side as a graduate student. All graduate students are looking for some kind of yeah, money making gigs. gig. Uh, yeah. And eventually over time, if you want to just compress this whole thing, I went from being a scientist with a writing thing on the side to being a writer with a science thing on the side. So that's how I ended up, uh, you know, turning to writing books about things that I was doing. So I've written books about skiing. I've written books about um, herpetologists. I wrote a book about... <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated by subcultures, right? And obviously skiing is quite a subculture. Herpetology is quite a subculture. And uh, and then when I was writing that book about herpetology, I, I uh, came across the what was probably the marquee invasive species story of the mid-2000s, which was the Burmese pythons in the Florida Everglades. And I ended up uh, reading quite a bit about that, talking to people who were involved in studying that phenomenon. And um, I, I wrote a magazine, or I went to Florida. I got an editor to actually think it was a great idea to send me to Florida to look into the invasive Burmese python situation. That was around 2008. That was extremely eye-opening and made a great story. And uh, I learned a lot about not just an invasive species problem, but the, the gestalt of invasive species, you know, that, how it had infiltrated you know, park management people's psyches for years and what was being done about it, who was involved, who was paying, all these types of things. That drew me into looking, wanting to look into more invasive species stories. And I ended up writing magazine pieces about invasive rats in Haida Gwaii, invasive deer on Anticosti Island in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. I wrote an article about the invasive plants in the Sea of Sky region. Uh, because I met the people from the Sea to Sky Invasive Species Council and found out what they were doing. So all of this was like tag-along stuff, right? Like interesting science going on, interesting scientists and people to hang out with, stories to tell. Next thing I knew, I had enough material. I was like, I think I better write a book about this. Right. And also because mainly I realized 
how big of a deal invasive species actually were and how how they were impacting ecosystems so profoundly. And the subtitle of the book, which you mentioned was The Aliens Among Us, was kind of the thesis of that, which is how invasive species are transforming the planet and ourselves. So I learned while I was writing all these pieces and hanging out with these people that that there was a zeitgeist of invasive species and we'd kind of grown up with it and into it and we didn't even know that it was part of our mindset that we accepted all of the stuff around us that is non-native as part of the you know the wild bits of our existence that you know when i was a kid i would hang out along i would go to the railroad tracks because that was the wild area in my suburb right that was where all the greenery was it's where all the snakes were it was where everything was going on i had no idea that nothing i was looking at literally plant wise was actually native to that area but that this was these right-of-ways like railways were these fortuitous incursions where invasive species could find a place to proliferate and no one would do anything about it yeah just like ways to establish themselves it's really common along logging roads too way out in the bush oh yeah for sure yeah because logging trucks the tires are moving the seed propagules along and and in a way opening up dirt and just like making it like prime fertile ground for things to establish exactly and and it's it's really interesting because i mean like what you're talking about has kind of been a reoccurring theme with all these podcast episodes i don't know if it's something if you've listened to them but there's this idea of shifting baselines and how when we grow up in our life it's like what we grow up with we deem as normal and the change that happens can be usually often it's quite slow so like we can see the change but it's it's too slow to like really cause any like warning alarms to go off but compared to the generation before us and the generation before that like it's radically different and then by the time we pass and our kids go on like what their version of normal is is going to be look like a nightmare to us because it's going to be completely radically different from what we've known already and and Mm -hmm. uh and that's an interesting thing is, as you say, this w- was a kind of a generational phenomenon for a while. It would take, you know, 20 years for something to shift enough that, that you could kind of invoke that phenomenon. And now it's happening much more rapidly. In fact, while I was writing a book, the guy who I picked as the main character, the sort of sensi who was leading me through the the vagaries of the invasive species uh, world, you know, he talked a lot about shifting baseline syndrome. He's a fisheries scientist in Ontario. And the guy who invented the the concept of shifting, well, he didn't invent the concept, obviously nature did, but who the person who first identified it was a fisheries scientist. And, um, you know, so this fellow in the book, Nick Mandrick, and I talked a lot about our own personal experiences of shifting baseline syndrome, because we're the same age, we were graduate students together, and things that had occurred changed over the course of our existence or from when we were kids. However, while in the four years that I was writing the book, there was an opportunity to actually see wholesale landscape change from one or two invasive species in different places where this 
phenomenon of shifting baseline syndrome was being foisted on kids or not just a generation, but on someone someone's childhood such that by the time they were a teenager, the entire world they were looking at was completely different than it was when they were a kid. Like, so, you know, five to 10 year horizons now because of globalization, for one thing, which means the number of things that are coming in is much greater. And if the number of things that are coming in are much greater, the number that establish are much greater and the ones that become problems are much greater. And the big sort of thing about invasive species is they often form monocultures. So they take over very large areas. They literally become the stage dressing, the, the late motif, the background. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're looking at a pretty good example of that here with this these blackberry berms. And I love that blackberry patches are called berms because they literally build berms. <laughs> right, this impenetrable mound of things that you yeah, can't they get make, through. The first ones, you know, they bend over and then they hit the ground and they yeah. reroute. And then the next ones grow on top of that. And the next thing you know, you've got like this serious berm and everything grows on top of it. Yeah, well, that's actually, yeah, it's coming over a fence there. You might not even see that. No. <laughs> yeah. just, but they just, they take over. They're nuts. Um, well, yeah, there's some of it up here, but then you can t the the dead stuff is dead because the rail guys go they by. They hack it. it down every year. No, no, they spray it. Oh, is this glyphosated? Glyphosated post more, more than glyphosate. <laughs> yeah. They it's full on Asian orange. Yeah, they've they've got um they've got a uh, certificate to to spray. F I believe it's five meters either side of five meters. Five meters, and they do. So don't ever eat any berries along a railroad track. <laughs> oh, you know, that's actually a bummer because I have definitely foraged for some thimble berries in this area. Stay oh. away from the track. <laughs> Stay away from the track. God damn it. <laughs> anyway, yes, shifting baseline syndrome. It's it's mm. shifting faster and more more uh, profoundly in many cases. Yeah, and I mean, and pertaining to like pop culture, you know, shifting baselines, I think like for people who have never heard this concept before and this is like a new thing, I think the easiest way to compare it to is like people in our generation, my generation who grew up with dial-up internet and hearing the... <laughs> Like yeah, that, yeah. and then and floppy disks and CDs and kids nowadays just being like, oh, like, oh, cool, a floppy disk. That's someone just three D printed the save icon, and it's like, no, that like stems from something. It's just like people who are totally disconnected from where the origins of it are, and like that is normal. They're, like normal to kids these days, you always had internet. It was always lightning speed. Wi Fi is always a thing. Bluetooth always a thing. Whereas like for me, like I'm I hate Bluetooth. I'm still getting used to that. I like wires. I like to plug things in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that and then like pertain to like ecological processes or nature or like fish stocks. Like there's, you know, people see something when they're younger, they see hundreds of fish coming up a river, but then by the time they're 50, it's down to dozens. And then, yeah, but the younger generation only knows it as dozens. So, for, you know, it's it just, it's what's normalized kind of as people are growing up. And then as things change, there's like, well, you're, you're basically saying that, um, the bitmap of your brain, the, the nature bitmap of your brain, you know, is formed when you're young. Right. Like everything else. It, and then it, it, when it changes, it's disquieting. 
Right. And I think like the issue with it or the, the reason this is important to understand is because if your baseline is set at an already low number and then that gets a little bit lower, it's seen as less of a change than if your baseline was set as like it at a high number or like at, in a flourishing state, um, that change is radical. When it goes from, you know, millions of fish coming up river to dozens, that's a significant change. But if you're only right. used to the dozens and it goes from a do two dozen to one dozen, that's less of a change, even though across like the impact that it's had since like. That's true. And you, but you're talking, and so it, it's good to point out that there's both quantitative issues that can be aligned to the shifting baseline syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, an impoverishment of the nature that's there, less lesser of organisms. And then there's a qualitative one where you've got wholesale shifts in species, you know, where one thing is gone and something else is in its place. And, you know, like the one I was sort of referring to earlier when I was talking about uh, Nick and I talking about our childhood versus what kids are dealing with now in Ontario is with uh, this plant Phragmites. I don't know if you know much about Phragmites, but it's kind of like a What's giant the common grass. name of that? Phragmites. Phragmites is the common name. Yeah. Yeah. That's the genus name, and that's the same. No one calls it anything else. Yeah. But it's basically replaced cattails, you know, the common cattail in marshes. So no kid in Ontario, like, knows what a cattail looks like. Wow. Or will ever know what a cattail looks like unless all the Phragmites can be removed and native cattails can somehow reestablish themselves. So Phragmites has become, you know, the the sort of plant they will know as mar the margins of lakes and marshes and everything are dense mats of Phragmites that you can't actually get through because they're so thick. Wow. And... uh you know, so all all the things that were associated with cattails, like red winged blackbirds that love to sit on them and sing, and you know the the insects that that frequented them, and the the ability to see through cattails to the water, well, kids don't have that now. Phragmites is twice as tall, you know, four meters, and it's it's like dense, like jungle dense. You can't see the water. No animals can use it. The stems are too close together. Birds don't like it because the insects they're normally feeding on don't hang out on Phragmites. So, or it's probably too dense even to like hunt in or, or forage and like for birds to get through. Exactly. You could flit from one cattail to another. You cannot flit from one Phragmites to another. So, you know, these like shifting baseline syndrome is something that we deal with. But think I, I think about all the animals and plants that are part of these ecosystems that are dealing with the same thing. You know, like like birds are being born that will never know cattails. They'll only know Phragmites. Well, and I mean, from a population's level too, like when we refer to shifting baselines, it's mostly from like our individual experience or like what we can remember, or what we associate with, like how we live. But, um, you know, in populations of birds, we're like, I don't know how long the average bird like lives, maybe say 15 years, 10 years. It depends. Songbirds, sure. shorter. I, yeah, that's you know, that's a al albatross seventy. Right, it's a hard <laughs> distinction to make. But whatever. But what I'm saying is that like yeah. it's happening generationally, so it's like their idea of shifting exactly. baselines isn't even like something that is relative to their experience. It's just like all of a sudden their populations are either shrinking or growing massively, and like they're adapting to changes in the ecosystem that are right. happening far faster than they 
used to or wouldn't naturally. Yeah. Yeah. So in those five to eight years, which is probably the average for yeah. most of the songbirds we see around here. Yeah. It, these things are, are happening very rapidly and, and then they're being impact. The shifting baseline syndrome is a result of, of course, not just one thing. It's always a bunch of things and it always depends. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's the new ethos in ecology. It depends. It's always more than one thing and it always depends. Right. So there's, there's a context uh, dependence for everything, you know, like anyway, so climate change uh, and invasive species together create a, a completely different thing than just one or the other right. on, on their own. And then combined with habitat loss, destruction, development, like all these things are opening so many... Disease. Right, right. If you were to, to define an invasive species, what is an invasive species? And are there different levels of invasive species? That, that, that's a good place to start. So basically, you know, in general, um, the, the way to look at this is an introduced species is a species that has been transported from outside of its native range and put somewhere that it has never been before, where it doesn't occur. That's an introduced species. That's an introduced species. And invasive species are a subset of introduced species. Invasive species are those introduced species that have become self-perpetuating mm -hmm. and problematic from an ecological standpoint. In other words, they've been introduced and then have been able to find a way to survive and prolificate it, like rapidly. Yeah, on and, their own, like right. You know, like we we have Japanese maples in a lot of gardens, and they're everywhere, but they can't self perpetuate for some reason. So they've been introduced, but they're not. They're, they're not, not invasive because they're they aren't not, spreading on their own. They're not spreading, and they're you know, but uh, and there's also this very cool sort of. Uh, uh, axiom, I guess, called the rule of tens. It's a rough thing, but it kind of goes like this. For Because, you know, we were talking about globalization before and all of the ways that invasive or species can be introduced to, to places, all the vectors and pathways or, you know, boats, planes, trains, right-of-ways, people, baggage, shipping containers... There's tons of stuff coming into every port all the time. And basically for like every 10 organisms that are introduced, one of them will become established. And for every 10 that become established, one will become invasive. So it's like a factorial thing, right? So if you do the factorial, it's like 10, uh, 10, 10, 10 times three. It's like one out of every 1,000 introduced species will become invasive. But if you look around us and you see, well, there's probably at least 10 invasive species here. Then, you know, if you do the math backwards, you're like, well, that means that at least 10,000 <laughs> Things were introduced just to establish right. these guys. And and I guess when something becomes naturalized, that just means that it becomes part of that kind of ecosystem mix. And like a... Well, well we, yeah, yeah, basically. Although we don't know what the adjustments are mm -hmm. 
it, you know, within the ecosystem, people haven't really spent a ton of time studying that yet because they're still too busy dealing with all the new things that come in and trying to understand how they're impacting as opposed to looking at a bigger picture. Okay, how's everyone adjusting? How's everyone doing here? <laughs> how, are, how are we all handling each well, other? Well, it's like you said, like we've, we've entered an age now when we understand that it's never just one thing and it depends. Yeah. So it's like... Which is good, I think. I think it's great that humans' level of understanding has moved past the like kind of sequential, like, oh, this plus this equals this. And we realize that everything has kind of a bigger impact than we're initially aware of. Um, but with like yeah. species like this, um, like the foxgloves, for example, like that has been naturalized. It's so commonplace. Is it necessarily invasive? Is it outcompeting things? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it has an effect. Um, it was funny. I just saw a bunch of that in Ireland and I was trying to figure out, is this stuff native to here? Ireland had so many invasive species. It was right. crazy, but it, I think it might be European. So um, it's not one that I'm hugely familiar with, but I can, you know, you can definitely talk about, um, well, blackberry, for instance, sure. Him Himalayan blackberry. It, you know, it's everywhere. And the birds love eating the berries and they fly around and poop the seeds out and then there's more blackberry I mean, everywhere. humans love it. Like we love a blackberry pie. It's it's, these are so familiar to us and we're using them. And, you know, if you go and take the blackberries out in Jericho Beach, some woman who lives across the street will get pissed off because she was feeding the birds. The birds that were there for the blackberry used to come to her feeder. And, and now, that's her baseline. And, yeah, she's always and had she's those blackberries. She's super bummed because someone came and said, yeah, those blackberries shouldn't be here and we're taking them out. Right. Right. And then there's a bazillion like in, invasive rabbit, European rabbits that live in the blackberry in Jericho Beach as well. And they would all have nowhere to go except people's yards. <laughs> it's a trickle down. <laughs> it, it totally is. But so these are our familiar organisms and there's, Certainly some ecological adjustment from some native species, but for the most part, they basically outcompete native species. Like where there are blackberry berms, nothing else can grow. So there's a light competition. No light is getting to the ground. There's a nutrient competition going on. There's a physical competition. The only thing I've seen that actually can work with blackberry is another invasive, Japanese knotweed. And it'll grow onto the berm. You know, it'll grow on top of the berm. And it actually tends to germinate earlier in the spring than the blackberry. So it can get going. And every once in a while, you'll see some knotweed on top of the blackberry. However, the blackberry is more prolific and eventually... It's like the little shop of horrors. Do you remember that <laughs> yeah. kind of play? Or yeah. like the plants the plant like eating eats. people? Right. The blackberry will always... Cut come back and grow over whatever grows over it. It it always, it's like the rock, paper, scissors winner, you know? So then you have to say, yeah, it's familiar, but it's definitely doing a number on native species that we no longer see or even think about because they're simply not there. They cannot compete. Well, and that's why I thought this was such a great 
great little spot because like we're we're just in between a couple um himalayan blackberry patches here but you can see there's this thimbleberry and exactly. i'll just videotape this here so people can see it we have this thimbleberry here that's just like just starting to flower but you can already see that this season's himalayan blackberry is like just like almost a meter taller than it and then surrounding the area there's himalayan blackberry all over like look at this berm this thing is huge um so like that's one of those things that like I remember driving down in Washington and seeing like berms of Himalayan blackberry that were like I don't know I want to say twenty feet tall but that seems ridiculous to say but maybe they're huge like Hold on. If for they, sure four or five meters is not unusual that's insane that's I know. so tall yeah and but it's just it's 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 thirty forty years of mm -hmm. growth and you can see because they somebody killed the vegetation here you can see the layers upon layers upon layers and how it how it can do that over time, right? It's just a fascinating phenomenon. And this would never happen in its native range. This plant could never grow like this. Yeah. It would be like this, more like, oh, just a plant. There it is, a little, little blackberry plant growing amongst a bunch of other plants. This uh, thimbleberry thing is a very interesting example, though, because thimbleberry and... and um, Salmonberry, mm -hmm. they're pretty common, and they work really well together. Yeah, and they're they're, they're native, mm -hmm. and there's a seed bank of them around, and so you have this very interesting phenomenon. When you say seed bank, you mean like seeds that are just existing in the soil. They're in the from soil. Generations, right? Birds have pooped them out. They're they're there. They've been plants there. The fruit have fallen to the ground. Whatever, but of course they're outcompeted. By blackberry. Like, this guy's growing here now because these guys sprayed this down. And if nothing else happened here, three years from now, this blackberry here and the one behind you would fill this space and these guys would be... Just shaded out. They'd be toast. But when you remove invasives in the Pacific Northwest, and I spent quite a bit of time removing invasives, particularly burdock, it's amazing how fast the thimbleberry and the salmonberry come back like immediately, like the next season. Sometimes if you take out a patch of invasives in the spring, a month or two later, these will be regenerating. So the seed bank is there, you know, it's, it's like this thing that's in suspended animation. And the problem is there's also an invasive seed bank. So you got to take, invasive seed bank out or keep them from flowering or reproducing and that's always the biggest challenge in any kind of management well this goes to that um you had like an invasive species curve in your book so there yep. was different stages uh of like of a plant being introduced do you want to talk about those four different stages yeah so you know interestingly it's the um the normalized kind of population curve that you kind of see for like any right animal population Bell it's curve like, starts low exponential yeah. then plateaus and then it plateaus as the as the resources that it starts to use you know, become limiting and the population plateaus and so with invasive species it's like you know it starts out obviously very small like Someone's introduced something, and oh, look, it got established, and oh, now it's self-perpetuating. But it takes a while for it to self-perpetuate, so the, the line is very low, and it's growing very slowly. But at some point, it reaches 
for whatever reason, maybe it's a climate event, maybe it's a, a critical mass, like it needed to have a certain amount of it before it could do this. But at some point, there's an inflection where it just goes, and it has an exponential growth period, and then it flattens out. And that happens with every invasive species. Uh, so they're getting going, and maybe they find the perfect habitat to exploit or whatever. Maybe birds start eating them and moving their seeds around. So you end up with this classic curve, S-curve. And the thing about that curve is it also corresponds to human reactions to invasive species. So down here at the bottom, that's growing very slowly and incrementally, you're not even aware of it. You know, you don't even know those, mm -mm. those plants are around yet. Because you don't see it. You don't see it. And then all of a sudden, it explodes. You're like, what? Whoa, where did this stuff come from? What? what? Who, who? You know, somebody's to blame, God damn it. Anyway, but, <laughs> yeah. but by the time that happens, it's too late. You know, if you don't catch something, if you don't detect it early and have a rapid response to crushing it or keeping it from getting established, you're going to reach this inflection point where suddenly it's everywhere. And that's typically when humans clue in, you know, because we don't like to spend money on prevention and stuff. We like to, you know, we tend to like see a problem and then try and get someone to pay to fix it. So we see it in the middle of the exponential growth that is the very problematic part of an invasive species curve in which you're, you're only kind of move is control of some kind. Like you can't eradicate it. You can only eradicate it at the bottom of the curve. Once it goes up, you're into control. And if you blow control, then you get to the plateau where it's just going to be everywhere and you're going to have to manage it. Maintain, yeah. Maintain, manage for the rest of time. And, I, and that means different things depending on whether it's a plant or a fish or a deer or a Burmese python. Right. Yeah, so so the four stages would be prevent, prevent something from coming in, yeah. then it's eradicate as soon as it's detected when yeah. the numbers are still low and you still have a chance to get it before that that um, population boom happens. Yeah. And then as that population boom's happening, it's trying to contain where it's booming and trying to limit it. Contain and control. Contain and control. And then yeah. once it's once it's basically everywhere, then it's just a matter of like management. Has there ever been any like positive stories about being able to like I guess fully eradicate invasive species. Yeah, I, mean, um, I think about like the Burmese, the python in Florida. There's um, well, that that's, hogs and on Hawaii. Like yeah, so so obviously it's never just one thing, and it always depends. <laughs> so, <laughs> but if you have a, a geographically contained area like an island, you have a chance of eradicating and there's been some spectacular eradications that have taken place around the world in the last 30 years on islands uh rats have been uh rats which got to literally every island in the world on ships but just decimated all the native uh small mammal bird and lizard and amphibian fauna on islands you know people set out to try and figure out how can we eradicate rats from smaller islands and they 
they figured it out and then they moved on to bigger islands and then bigger and it kind of turned into a competition where you know australia and new zealand are like trying to be the the country that has eradicated rats from the biggest island and they what it's very positive because they're they're doing it but it's also very expensive and kind of uh, jingoistic <laughs> at the same time but there's been some bigger ones like they've eradicated goats from one of the galapagos islands that's cool yeah uh feral goats that were released and became invasive and of course they were affecting everything there was reindeer uh released on south georgia island you know down in the antarctic ocean reindeer yeah because there was whaling stations down there and so the norwegians right. who had the whaling stations they brought reindeer down and let them go because south georgia island which is huge and they were able to find enough lichen and stuff how, how do but they... that's the thing is they let them go there because it was exactly the same as right the... up north yeah so it's it was a subpolar island but it was a sub Antarctic island as opposed to a subarctic island. So the reindeer did fine. They created huge herds. The whalers shot and ate them. And then, you know, when whaling ended and whaling stations were abandoned, they left and the reindeer were still there. But the reindeer were like destroying the the uh, fragile ecology of the island by that point because there was too many of them. They were eating all the lichen, messing with bird nests, yada, yada, yada. But so they... Some trust spent five million bucks and they got rid of the reindeer from South Georgia Island. Which seems like a much easier thing to get rid of, though, if you're going to do that. Because it's just like, hey, you organize people to go down with guns and you have a massive call and you just literally just shoot them all. I'm assuming is what happened. But when it's something yes. more subtle, as like seeds in the soil, and you think about the mix, like going from the North Pole to the South Pole, that's quite literally the like opposite side of the world. And mm -hmm. I'm, I haven't... I don't know my um, kind of geomorphology well enough to know what plant species are separated up there on like the top of North America versus down on Antarctica. But I mean, I imagine those are very radically different um, ecosystems in terms of like the microbes and the soil and like the different uh, mosses and plant species that are able to take root there. So you're disrupting quite a bit. Yeah. Well, they're actually more similar than you think. Similar, but like they've been separated by... Um, but they haven't. And that's the interesting thing, because the smaller something is, the more easily transported it is. So right. bir birds have moved bacteria and lichen spores and everything. You know, like think of an Arctic tern. They, they make this migration every year from the Ant Antarctic to the Arctic. They, and they're carrying crap in their feathers, spores, pollen bacteria, worm eggs. So so they're actually less separated in these marginal environments that that are very simple ecosystems mm. than, than the ones you're kind of thinking of, the big like continental masses of marsupials over here and da da da. It, it's it's kind of funny. They have been separated, but not entirely. And so you will find in the Arctic and Antarctic, you'll find organisms that are like circumpolar in both hemispheres really yeah like the most common lichen in the world is uh um, map lichen that's the flat lichen that grows on rock right yeah and it just looks like little mm -hmm. squiggles geometrical shapes and it's something rather geographicus but it's it's everywhere in the world it's the same species because it's so easily moved around by 
not just birds, but insects and every, everyone. Everyone's trading map lichen. Yeah, that's, spores, that's you know? so wild because, I, I mean, to my understanding, the, the hemispheres have been separated by just the equator, which, is, you know, keeps a lot of species out. But I guess birds are, birds are able to go everywhere. Yeah, and then the other thing is th that you've got in the middle of the Earth, you've got all these complex ecosystems that have been there kind of shrinking and expanding during ice ages and stuff, but they're there and they're, they're very complex and they're very integrated. And so it's hard to like, you know, put new stuff in here or there, but the poles, they get wiped clean every few millennia, right? So it's easy to reestablish stuff that's common everywhere. Yeah, true. And actually this brings up a good point. They're very vulnerable to invasive species as a result of that. And so, you know, there's like a, there's a real acknowledgement, um, especially in Antarctic travel, which is now a huge sector. Uh, they bring these big boats like down there. Tourism, big boats. They take people in on Zodiacs and stuff. And they have to go through a very complex cleaning process before they get into a boat. And then when they come back, so that they're not introducing stuff that Buddy from Wales has brought on the bottom of his hiking shoe, you know, to an Antarctic environment. Nevertheless, the the Western Antarctic Peninsula, the one that's the most susceptible to warming at the moment, is actually starting to turn up some invasive species, grasses and That's things. where the Ross ice sheet was that collapsed? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's insane. It is. But, um, you know, at least there's at least there's an acknowledgement of the risk and people trying to be more proactive mm -hmm. about it. I mean, uh, yeah. And, and like when you think about the polls and the rate of change happening there, um, the scale is just so unfathomable. I mean, like there's so much happening right now as far as like oil exploration and, and I guess I, um, boundary lines between like, um, Russia and Canada and all these com countries who typically it was just ice, but now as the ice caps starting to melt, it's like defining nautical boundaries and who has rights and title to like what oil drilling patches. And it's just like, it's happening so quickly. And then with yeah. that is going to come more development, more um, routes in and out, tanker travel, things that are going to be have the capability to establish on these um, desolate areas. It was like prime example of primary succession in the worst, except it's just where the species are coming from is going to dictate how it kind of succeeds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually, uh, super risky right, right now because, because of all of these, these new intentions that are being made possible by the, the sort of shifting seasonal realities uh, of different parts of the world due to climate change. Yeah, it's funny, like, it, humans, <laughs> there's like 10 people who are going, yeah, well, this could be really bad. And, you know, a billion going, this is awesome. Like, we're going to be able to exploit the shit out of this. <laughs> Look how much <laughs> money we can make. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God, I just can't. Why are we like this? Well, I think it's fascinating, too, when you look at the way that different species do interact. Like, coming back here a little bit, um, 
and just like relative to, to primary succession and stuff like here you know we have like the certain um, mosses and lichens and grasses and things are going to infiltrate first and then it leads to bushes and trees and everything else and like you've said everything here kind of has a mix so we have like the thimble berries and salmon berries which have um you know different different periods that they grow like thimble berries come out later salmon berries are usually the first ones to blossom and first ones to fruit so by the time they're done fruiting the thimble berries come in and then they fruit so it's kind of providing this like endless cycle of food for all the native birds and, and animals are going to eat those berries the bears um and then they kind of like they work together in this cycle through the systems like you've said himalayan blackberry in its native range would never grow like this um do you know the like where is himalayan blackberry from in India somewhere, the Himalaya. <laughs> yeah. And the sub, the sub, um, foothills of the Himalaya. Right. And do you know kind of like what mix of species it grows with there? Like it's kind of range because it's just, it's so radically different. It's growth pattern is so radically different from, um, salmonberry and thimbleberry where like, you can look at this, it just, it's straight up to the sky for the first like three months of spring into summer. And then it droops. Yeah, branches down, and then yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't even form fruit until like August, so it's so late in the season compared to everything else. Yeah. So, to follow on what you just said, um, one of the reasons it's it's found success here is because it can exploit that sequence niche. You know, the thimbleberry and the salmon, or salmonberry thimbleberry, and then native raspberry. Mm-hmm. Succession and huckleberry and huckleberry too. and blueberry, they have co-evolved with the pollinators that serve them. So that sequence is is logical in that you know, as each wave presents itself, the pollinators can move onto these things and and help serve all of them. So they've all found a a, a timing niche with each other. So they're part of the you know, the integrated ecology of the Pacific Northwest works that way. So if you're a non-native species, how do you kind of uh, stick your foot in the door, you know, and get some attention? Well, you do it where there's an opening, and the opening is after everyone else has been pollinated. And so interestingly, you will find that a lot of... Um, a lot of invasives kind of are, they tend to be, have a bunch of characteristics that help them along. They're more generalists generally, but sometimes they have these very particular ones, like they flower at a certain time, like knotweed, that's its superpower. It flowers in September. Everyone's done. And every freaking insect in the Pacific Northwest is like, it's not weed time. Right. So they have huge seed sets, right? And and it's ridiculous. And Blackberry is doing the same thing. It's like perfectly fitting into that later, just slightly later window and, you know, getting the pollination attention it needs. And then the spreading too. It's like the birds, the migratory birds. They're all coming through at different times of the year, right? We've got like the spring migrants and fall migrants. Fall migrants are like loading up on blackberry and continuing on and then pooping it out somewhere else. If you go to, you want to see a really interesting mix of invasives, go to a place like uh, Blackie Spit Park in 
um, White Rock, which is a southern st- BC there. Yeah, it's yeah. a stopover on the Pacific Flyway. It's an estuary, and you you know you you see all birders go there a ton because there's all sorts of interesting birds. But then you can see all sorts of interesting invasives. Yeah, that are coming with those birds. They're going up and down the Pacific Flyway, and you know, like the waders, they're carrying spores of invasive cord grass on their feet coming up from California and they stop there and boom, there's the cord grass and they, they keep going and someone else is coming south and they've got something and, you know, so we have moved stuff around so much that now it's being perpetuated by the re- the rest of the natural world as well. We've made it such a common thing that that they've become vectors of something that we started out vectoring so it's hard to imagine us getting on top of things once they get to that stage well so then i guess that raises some really interesting questions as far as like what our role is and like in the prevention and eradication kind of stages if like so at that estuary, is the restoration work happening to remove every invasive that comes in even though it's now going to be coming in it's annually, semi-annually no, from different parts of the world. People are watching for like new stuff. Okay. Like if something new shows up and we can get on it right away, then they do. But there is some restoration work going on there. And the reason I knew about it was because when I was writing that book, I went out with uh, some guys from, uh, I think it might have been Diamond Head Consulting or something. And they were doing a big patch of blackberry removal and putting native trees uh, in, and I wanted to see like just how labor intensive that work was, and it was. It was insane. They had like literally taken two weeks to pry out the boluses of oh, these blackberries. They're horrible. The, the crowbars and all this. Anyway, they're like putting this stuff on trailers. You need like a backhoe to get it out. Yeah, and these guys are all get wearing heaviest gloves you can, but they're all still getting stuck through the gloves and having infected things from these thorns and but they they had gotten out a lot and they had planted some trees and then so there was a new area they were doing. Then there was an area that they'd planted and they were coming back to get the blackberry that was regrowing there. Because It'll keep regrowing uh, until you you exhaust it, I suppose, is the words. So they were doing that as well. But um, so, you know, the answer to that question is some places like that are people are putting money and time into restoring them. This is an interesting thing, too. The term eco-restoration is probably non-existent entity. It's impossible to completely restore an ecosystem. Eco-rehabilitation is the best we can hope for. Let's get it back to a functioning state. And, you know, so there's all some study that has to go on to say, okay, what's not working in this ecosystem anymore because of these invasives? And what is? And we don't, so if stuff is working and some invasives are involved, well, who cares? But if it's not working, maybe we need to get those out. And in the case of like that area, you know, it was kind of decided Blackberry needed to go and a lot of other places it's not weed because it crowds things out. Some places it's Scotch broom, although 
a lot of people just kind of give up on scotch brew because it's so hard to deal with. But scotch broom is a perilous invasive. It creates such huge problems, not only because it crowds everything out, but the way it does it, uh, which is through a phenomenon called allelopathy, where uh, an allelopathy can go both ways. It, it, it refers to plants secreting chemicals into the soil. And sometimes those secretions are beneficial and allow certain things to grow, and sometimes they prohibit. In the case of many of the invasives doing well in the Pacific Northwest, it's, it's a negative allelopathic effect where they secrete stuff into the soil and nothing else can grow there. Mm -hmm. And scotch broom does that. So scotch broom... In addition to growing rapidly, really bushy and thick and shading everything out. Right. But that's how it does it. Right. Allelopathy. And then, you know, nothing else can grow. So it grows rapidly into that space and then it shades everything out and then it does more allelopathy and so it, it's like a it's kind of like a slow motion explosion but faster than you'd ever imagine and then once it's established it's a fire hazard which is the last thing that we need you know it's got a volatile oil in it and if fire ever hits a patch of scotch broom it l literally explodes like in the way that you see you know you see explosions during the fires in southern california when sage and yucca plants go up and stuff same thing it just goes and so it helps spread fire faster um and uh so there's a like second order problem that right is created well not only that but then their seeds are incredibly resilient like can't their seeds sit in the soil for up to 17 years i heard dormant? 80 80, 80 years eight, dormant zero that yeah. is insane yeah so when you take out scotch broom as i was mentioning you need to take the seed bank out which means you need to take the soil out uh, about five meters around the plant down to whatever you think has accumulated in the last five meters. Yeah, because they have seeds that sh they're are, spring loaded. They like, they're spring loaded yeah. in these pods, and they can shoot five meters. So, so then you're basically left with scorched earth, and then you're coming back from kind of. But <laughs> so you cut, you 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 clean it out. You take this as much of the seed bank out as you can. Yeah. And then you hope the native flora grows in really quickly. And then you just keep coming back to check on germinated broom seeds. And you got to do that for five, six, seven years. Yeah. But eventually you'll exhaust the seed bank. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I'm doing that with, with burdock in Whistler right now. Because burdock is one of these things that also, uh, you know, creates a lot of other problems and it, it encourages other invasive plants to grow with it, which is another phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, called uh, invasional meltdown. An invasional meltdown is where one or more invasive species facilitate the invasion of others. Of others. Yeah. So what it's turned out that burdock, which is a Eurasian species and is found everywhere, does, it's highly allelopathic. So as soon as it grows... Other stuff has problems growing there. It tends to grow in big patches. The burrs fall off. The seed bank gets huge. The burrs get moved around by bears, people, and bikers, and everything they stick to. But the, the native plants can't grow because of the chemicals that it's put in the soil. But non-native plants that co-evolved with burdock in Eurasia can grow. Mm. And so... 
you if you take burdock out, the first thing that grows there is bitter dock, which is another invasive, but much more benign. It doesn't do anything and you don't care about it. But you're like, why is it here? Like, where, where did it come from? Like, well, it was already there. It was, the seeds were in the soil. It was just being shaded out by the burdock. But now that you've removed the burdock, no native plants can grow in this little black circle under the burdock, but bitter dock can, because it can handle the chemicals. Mm. You know, so the burdock has kind of tempered the soil specifically for other plants that grow well in that type of soil. Well, in its native range, its the na- burdock yeah. would not be growing in a patch; it would be growing right next to everything else. And you pulled some burdock on the way over here, didn't you? I did. Let's take and a look I, at that. I brought it because uh, because I wanted to show this particular one, which was these things have huge roots, big tap roots. So this root would be about this long, as long as my arm. And I had dug this burdock up last year as well, and you could this s- this same burdock in this area. This is this was from Whistler, but yeah. So I went back to the place this year to do some cleanup, and um, you know, because when you dig it up, there's always a piece of root left in the ground, right? And this is what a piece of root can grow. You know, you think there's no energy left in that root? Oh no, there is plenty of energy left in that root. <laughs> yeah. But you look at this root; it's rotten. It's all crappy and fibrous and, you know, it's not not doing well. And yet, it sat underground all winter and look what it produced. And it's still able to grow that. And this would grow into a two meter tall burdock plant with a pile of flowers and burrs on it. And it would just continue to perpetuate the yeah. uh, thing. So I've dug these up in the spring. And one thing, the other thing about burdock is there's a lot of... European slugs, European snails, and European earthworms in the Pacific Northwest. And where do you find them? On European plants. And so if we're worried about our native species of slugs and snails having to compete with introduced invasives, we need to get rid of the plants that they're associating with. So I often dig up a burdock and I'll find a rotten root like this in the spring like a big fat one, yeah. and inside there'll be like 100 earthworms, and there'll be European candy-striped snails on the outside of it, and European slugs. If I throw this on the ground, the first thing on it is going to probably be a black European slug or a chocolate Orion, also a European slug. And they'll, they'll eat that, and they'll, you know, be perfectly happy, and the native banana slugs won't go near it. Right. Because they can't handle the chemicals. And the black European slugs are out-competing the banana slugs slowly in areas of development, right? Right, because (laughs) for a million reasons, but one of which is we're allowing a lot of invasive plants from their native ecosystems to be there, and that just helps them. Um, You mentioned earthworms in that. Earthworms are an invasive species. Over most of... Uh, northern North America, yeah. So the last glaciation pushed the earthworm line down to about Des Moines, Iowa, like that far down, the last Wisconsin glaciation. And in Canada, so there's no native earthworms anywhere except in very southwestern BC where there was no ice. So you can just imagine the table kind of getting cleaned off every time. And But Canada's full of worms. There's worms everywhere. Um, it's because they all came in with Europeans, um, 
you know, Europeans brought little potted plants with them over here and that soil got tossed in and now there's kind of worms. There's about 26, I think, species of... But they're all European descent worms. Uh, no, not... 26 species are European, but now there's about five or six Asian species. And this is just in the last five or six years, and it's all come from garden centers, all from uh, people dumping their plants out. And see, that's one of those things that seems so benign and like, you know, like as, as a kid growing up, I always thought that earthworms are great. They like aerate the soil and they like digest things. And, and yeah. like, yeah, they do probably, but like, again... Well, they've they're, they've, it, a... <laughs> they've co-evolved to do that in certain places. And um, so in Europe, you know, they're part of all, all the ecosystems in Europe. And they, they work with all the plants and, and the forests and the trees and stuff. In North America, the, the forest floors are very different than in Europe. In Europe, when you go in a forest, it's, it's like a bare mineral soil all of the organic matter on the surface has been drawn down by earthworms. So the plants that grow in forests are plants that can grow in bare mineral soils. The plants that grow in forests in Eastern North America, for instance, you know, all the big hardwood, maple, oak forests and everything, they grow in duff, like spongy leaf litter, and, and they can't grow in bare mineral soils. So now that we've got earthworms, all through these forests in New England and Eastern Canada, they've drawn down all the duff and turned those forests into bare mineral soils. So there's no native plants in North America that grow in bare mineral soils. But like, how but do you- But there's how... invasive plants from Europe that grow in bare mineral soils. So the forests out east are now full of garlic mustard, which is a invasive plant from Europe that can grow in bare mineral soil. Yeah. It, so, see, it seems so like wholesale change. It seems so daunting and hopeless. Like, how do you go about killing all the earthworms to stop this? Well, you, you know? can't. You yeah. Can't. So, so that's a situation where you want to control uh, the spread of earthworms. You know, they're already once an earth once earthworms get it, they move pretty slowly. They move about seventeen meters a year. It's been measured, but you know, from every roadway. <laughs> <laughs> and every sort of incursion, they'll they'll find their way there because their little egg sacs and cocoons are easily transported on people's feet and on car tires and ATVs and even mountain bike tires, which is why it's a really good idea for people to like clean and dry their mountain bikes before they go into the alpine, you know, so you're not taking worms up there or plant seeds or spores of, you know, stuff from the valley. So you can't get rid of them, but, you know, you can look at places where they aren't and you can do the things that need to be done to not spread them there, like clean tires, you know, or have people scrape off their hiking boots or their, uh, you know. I mean, fishing waders, boats. That's fishing waders, for sure. Like, and that's a whole different thing because right. there's all these algaes and stuff that are carried around mm -hmm. on especially waders. like freshwater ecosystems are so fragile like in their own like yeah things can come in there and take over real quickly yeah so you know one of the the good things that's going on right now is um the recognition that you know invasive zebra mussels for instance which you cannot eradicate once they're in a water body but you can prevent from getting into water bodies so 
you know, there's border patrols in BC, you know, because we don't have them yet. They haven't come west of the Rockies. And there's people who like stop folks coming in with boats and just do spot inspections on the outside of the boat to see if there's any of these things attached and, you know, handing out literature, encouraging people to clean, drain and dry their boats. And, and that's been going on for big time for, I don't know, almost 10 years, and it seems to be working. So the, so this small level of vigilance can actually pay some rewards if you institute it mm -hmm. at the right time. Yeah, I mean, the thing with that is that it's not cost taxpayer money. and Yes, it does. Yeah, politics change every four years. Different people are in office, and it's like, so how do you, I guess, like keep these things a priority to where it's like, how does this become just as standard and baseline of like an expense as managing our roadways when we can value it the oh, same? Well, I don't know. You're asking a question of psychology and philosophy <laughs> and politics to me, but I'll tell you this. Is you don't have to be an expert to have an opinion. No, that it, that you're right. It's like that's a real challenge, and anybody who works with invasive species, any managers or scientists, will will tell you that that is the challenge: is is keeping you know not just the public interest but the political right. interest and the will to do something about it. And you can imagine that politicians are are kind of allergic to spending money on things without outcomes they're that all, direct tangible yeah outcome. they're very yeah. outcome driven mm. so if you spend 50 million dollars a year uh in the great lakes to keep asian carp out um and other fish you you don't have anything to tell the politicians yeah, except nothing changed yeah you're like, you're like we kept it the same yeah, that's great there, there is no asian carp and but but really like you can't tell them oh yeah we prevented 17 species of european saprinids from invading you know the, the southern ontario waters you, you don't know that you know it's like if if a tree falls in the forest kind of thinking and so getting politicians on board with that kind of thinking which is necessary like prevention prevention money is tough and so you got to use analogies metaphors and one of the big ones that uh, i came across when i was researching that book which was being promulgated by several scientists was we need to treat invasive species as natural disasters they are natural disasters when they happen. They have that much impact, economic, ecological, environmental, health-wise. And we have conditioned politicians to some degree to fund natural disaster prevention. Not much, because we saw what happened here in BC last year. But in other countries, they spend tons of money on natural disaster prevention. Like in Japan, the amount of money that... that they, they allocate towards, um, you know, emergency plans and sirens and evacuation things for volcanic eruptions and tsunamis is huge. You know, it's a, it's a de facto um, integrated part of any budgeting process. You still get screwed every once in a while, as you saw with the tsunami in 2011. I mean, that destroyed an entire town that had an evacuation plan, that had tsunami sirens, that had a seawall. They were just inadequate for that particular event. So we need to get politicians 
to fund early detection and eradication. You know, the surveillance end of the, the invasive species thing. There's not a ton we can do about some of the stuff that's already here, but there's a ton we can do about the stuff that isn't here. And so that needs to just become part of it. And yeah, unfortunately, it costs money, uh, you know, but like, you can't just do nothing. Right. And I think, and I'm, I'm not too versed on the details here of like numbers or anything, but I do know that there's a substantial more amount of money in like just down in the States for restoration and, and like, or sorry, rehabilitation, ecological rehabilitation, as you say, to like yeah. restore the ecological function of various watersheds and environments that have been damaged by human development and actions, however that may be, whether it's mining, logging, yada, yada. But I feel like up here in BC and maybe Canada generalized is that there's still so much like expansive, you know, you can look up a hill and see all these trees and you just think it's just like the wild land is, is quote-unquote endless so what's the point of spending money trying to rehabilitate ecosystems that we've damaged when it seems like there's just so much more yeah um so trying to That's generate part of it for sure well and trying to generate that um, public appeal and the demand for more funding for these programs not only in the preventative measures but like in the kind of the restorative measures that go about like you know i don't know if there's any demand for removing uh plants like this from these train tracks or i mean like that itself is such a daunting task like in this one little area well, we have foxglove, Himalayan blackberry, we've already talked about. We have orange uh, hackweed. Hawkweed. Hawkweed. Um, there's uh, red clover just over there. Like, again, all of this is like, it's, you know, it's not like yeah, the most the, damaging, but it's everywhere. <laughs> it's true. And the clover, the clover is an example of one that it doesn't really cause any problems and it, it has similar functions to native species, but its abundance has been a kind of a subsidization for many native animals that eat it, mm -hmm. like bears, for instance. So, um, bears will eat the clover. Bears love clover. Dandelions and clover. And dandelions are invasive. Uh, yeah. You're right. that, no one ever figures that out. Although no one talks about that, but there's no way you're ever going to remove dandelions. They're everywhere. Dandelions are funny because they're like the perfect example of, um, you know, if you want to see how an invasive plant moves itself around, like go to any trailhead, parking areas full of dandelions. You get on the trail, dandelion, dandelion, do, 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 and then it starts petering out, boop, boop, and then it's just spot, spot, and then it's gone. And you're just like, oh, it, this is perfect. This is how they get moved along. Eventually, they'll fill the whole trail or the whole roadway or the whole yard or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't, you don't realize that it's a bad thing because again, it's shifting baselines. It's so commonplace that you never can imagine a time where it wasn't there. Yeah. And dandelions are, as an invasive species, they're everywhere, but they're kind of benign in that they're not, they're not impacting the native ecosystem. But versus something like um, Scotch broom, which you mentioned earlier, like that heavily impacting, heavily impacting, and it's everywhere. And so many people don't even realize that it's invasive. Like, so if you're driving along the highway, it looks so nice. It's so pretty. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like one of the first things to bloom. So it's like after right. winter, it's like, you know, that dark green and yellow. You're like, wow, it's so, it's like all the hills are golden, like the freeway berms. And you can see that, like, it's always along the roadways that are unmanaged. So it's like, if you go by a vacant lot, 
broom everywhere. You go, um, you know, the high, like along the highways, it's everywhere. And then as you kind any of, logging road on Vancouver Island, logging roads, they just cruise all the way up the logging roads. Yeah. And but then, and in, then into the clear cuts, yeah. which is really bad. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they're a fire hazard, and they're along roadways, which is where most fires originate from. From yep. people either kicking cigarette butts or sparks along ro- railways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there are some good stories about um, it being removed. It takes a lot of work. But didn't Bob Brett do something like that up in Whistler? Yeah, he's he's single handedly kept Scotch broom out of Whistler for about twenty years. So. Scotch broom is frequently transported around in fill, mm-hmm. soil, gravel, like whatever. Because it stays in the, in the sea bank for 80 years, like you said. Yeah. And, and so fill, the transportation of fill that hasn't been screened or, you know, from, from vacant lots and things like that is, is a major problem, but we'll leave that for now. Anyway, Bob found a couple of patches of Scotch broom in Whistler that had come in and fill when they were doing some work in, around Function Junction or something. And he started digging them out. And then he's like uh, returned to those areas every year for 15 years or something, maybe 20. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, it'll pop up again because of the seed, long-lasting seed bank. But he's been on top of it. And I've come across a few Scotch broom plants in Whistler. And I've called Bob and said, hey, found this up in Stonebridge. And he just goes takes it out right away. He has, I think he has a contract. Um, maybe it was originally with the RMOW, uh, the Resort Municipality of Whistler, for those who wouldn't know what I was talking about. But now I think he works through the Sea to Sky Invasive Species Council and that they pay him every year to monitor, you know, this early detection and rapid response stuff with Scotch Broom. So, in fact... You've got places like Squamish, Britannia Beach that are lousy with Scotch broom, but due to the efforts of both Bob and the Sea to Sky Invasive Species Council, there's a broom line on the Sea to Sky Highway beyond which they don't allow any broom. Any broom plant that pops up, they immediately eradicate. And below that line, they don't do anything. And that's more of, that's a control tactic. That's a control tactic. So... You know, because because Squamish has so much broom, it's going to keep moving up the highway. It's going to keep moving up the rail line. And, you know, people are just going to keep their eyes open for it and, and stop it before it gets any further. But there's nothing that can really be done about it down here unless people want to spend a bunch of money and a bunch of time and get some heavy machinery. Right. And from a policy perspective, like, how, what's it like? Like... The fill, for example, are there policies in place that we can enact where it's like you're not allowed to move fill from these areas to prevent it from spreading? Or is no. that more, that's kind of like a goodwill thing. It's like, no, there aren't policies, but there should be. And people are asking for those policies. Oh, so that's the thing that's that people are asking for. Yeah. Those policies exist in some places, like in Britain, for instance, they had such a knotweed problem and it was impacting real estate sales. And so the they, the government oh, enacted don't you dare a duty in our money. <laughs> well, yeah, like if it was found that you had knotweed on your property, like no, it was one, impacting real estate. Nobody sales. wanted to touch it because the cost of removing it is so insane. But and, it has to get to that level where it impacts the resale value of something versus like impacting. Well, <laughs> I, I just think find it, that funny. It's true. That's <laughs> like, humans, right? Yeah. But so it was knotweed that caused that. But now that idea has extended to right. cover 
all invasives because of the the duty of care that has now been enacted on moving Phil around. So Phil has, there's, I, I don't know how it works there, but like you can't just move Phil around in in the UK the, the way you can in BC. Here, you can just pick up Phil from anywhere and take it to anywhere else. There's no control. But so uh, like, are there like little asterisks or something? Like if say you're a responsible developer up in Whistler and you need some Phil, is, can you go to Phil companies and they'll be like, oh, and this is our special um, Scotch broom free soil. Yeah, you can yeah take. for sure. You can, you can ask for that stuff. You can demand that you can put your own duty of care on it. Um, and some people do, but uh, it's a, it's a, tough one because you know you might say to someone like you say i need some clean fill i used to see signs all the time when i was a kid on at the end of driveways that said clean fill you know and i know didn't know what it meant then but now i know what it means it, it meant no weeds you know anyway you can ask for some clean fill and someone might say yes we can supply you with clean fill and they might but then but then maybe some stuff might germinate in it and then you're like, that wasn't clean. And they're like, well, no, uh, we screened it. Uh, birds did that. Or, you know, like it's it's hard to to monitor in the longer term. I mean, we're having this issue now with community gardens in the Sea to Sky Corridor. And we're all getting compost from a soil provider who shall remain nameless. And that soil is full of weeds, full of them. And everyone's garden is full of weeds because all that soil is full of weeds. And this is from the compost, the yeah, compost they're giving. Yeah, because it's it's the temperatures aren't high enough in the compost for long enough to kill these propagules and these seeds and these spores and other things that are in there. So that's why invasive species are not allowed to be put in compost. Like there's special bins at waste transfer stations that say invasive species. You put them in there. You don't put them in the organic bins. Because if you put them in the organic bins, they go to the, you know, the composting places and their seeds might not get destroyed. And then they'll be spread around. Whereas if you put them in the invasive species bin, they get incinerated. Done. The hazard is gone. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it's just it's so overwhelming to think because it, so much of it does come down to uh, an individual education level. Like a majority yeah. of people. Folks need to know what they're doing all the right. time. We yeah. always, I mean, we didn't used to, but now we should always think, I need to know what's going on with what I'm doing. Right. I mean, but on so many different levels from like people who like, I've been lazy cleaning my bike before. Granted, I don't like I travel all around to different areas, but like, yeah, I never thought about that. It's like, oh yeah, I should probably clean my tires more. Um, or, you know, there's like people taking out the compost, people putting things in the organic waste pile after just doing like, you know, your spring cleanup in your yard. Like there are so many just like seemingly mindless things that people do to just do. And they're like, they think they're doing it right. But like, oh, yeah. there's so many chances for them to not to be. And then the ramifications sure. for that are huge. A classic is everyone buys these potted plants in the summer, especially the hanging ones, you know, where it's like a mix of some really nice flowers and some, some, ivy looking stuff and everything and then in, in the fall it's like what am i gonna do with this oh well this would be good compost for the forest well you've just thrown lamium the the scourge of ground cover into the forest and it grows into shade so whistler is full of 
huge swaths of lamium growing into the forest from every housing development because people are chucking the plants. So really, how can you, can you get the plant sellers to stop selling lamium? No. Can you educate people that they shouldn't throw their plant stuff? Yes. You know, but it's hard to do that because they think they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Or, or they cut down or, a bunch or of doing crap. something that's like not necessarily right, but it's just mindless. It's just like, Oh, it'll be fine. Just throw it out there. Just, yeah, but mostly it's that they don't know that would be a problem. Did you ever watch that series, The Good Place? No, never heard of it. Uh, it's a it's a series it on Netflix, and it's a woman gets sent to heaven, but she's not supposed to be there. She's actually a really shitty person, and so she realizes she made a mistake, and or someone made a mistake, and then she just spends four seasons trying to become a better person. But at one point in it, late on, this guy, you know, the the people who run hell and the people who run heaven are arguing and there's a judge in the middle and and the one guy is saying he's like the problem is that humans humans can't get into heaven anymore because everything they do has something bad attached to it so they're going to get negative points you know like if you buy a coffee with almond milk you think you're saving the environment but almonds are horrible for the environment <laughs> and, and you know all these examples and he's just like it's a minefield out there for humans now. And that's that's true. It's They're doing it as comedy, but it's real. Like we need to look into literally everything we're doing because we do so many things either unconsciously or benignly or thinking we're doing something good when in fact the ramifications of what we're doing are problematic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like with everything, like everything. Everything we do. So, but yeah, I just don't even know where to start with that because it does just seem like for the average person that just becomes so daunting. You can't do anything without looking it up and researching it. And most people are just, you know, trying to get by and live. Like it takes privilege to be able to like take the time to look at like what you're doing in a garden. I mean, to let alone to have a garden in the first place oh, takes privilege. Absolutely. But like to even... So much of this stuff is tied to privilege. Right. And it's really... You know, even even the ability to get educated about right. some of these things is tied to privilege. So it's really hard to kind of figure out how do we how do we move beyond that. And it, the only thing you can think is, well, it needs to this thinking, this way of being, which I'm, has been talked about a lot in your podcasts and and anything to do with this, the the need for this change it has to go into like parenting and the education system at the lowest levels you know like our existence the the concept we have of our existence and how we conduct ourselves in that existence needs to be shifted it needs to change and it needs to be inculcated at these lower levels and then we don't need have all these needs for like you know oh we have to educate people about this and we have to educate them about that because we will naturally be aware that we need to be educated about stuff and it will cross uh, class lines and, and all mm -hmm. of these. Well, and re religion, things. I find to be a huge hurdle in, in public education for sure. Yeah. Different parts of the world, but all of those things. Everything's just so intertwined together now. And like it's so. It, it really <laughs> comes down to a, a simpler concept, you know? Like it is a ton of stuff, like we said. It's never just one thing, and it always depends. But it's like we need—we just need to be conscious, people. We need to be conscious. Well, and I think people, at least, 
again, generalized statement here, but at least in like this era, this part of the world, North America, I feel like people have a certain disdain for education if they can't see a direct outcome like you're talking about, uh, like you were talking about with yeah. politics. It's like people will go to school an extra four years and spend X amount of money if it, they know that it's going to get them a job that's going to get them six figures and they can buy that house. It's like it's all driven by these um, kind of status symbol things, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to do more so you can have more. Um, but like on a basic level, like improving yourself or like learning how to communicate better, learning how to like have stronger relationships, learning how to do like that type of stuff that's like gives you a very intangible end product. People don't necessarily want to do that. So it's like, no, but that's a mindset. That, that's an unconscious exactly. mindset. I think we've been trained as this like culture cost North America to like yeah. not want to have any sort of education for like personal betterment or community betterment or like environmental benefit. Or just for the sake of knowledge. Just for the sake of and knowledge. Con and Right. It's like, so we're so caught up in these capitalistic like systems and like being fed advertisements everywhere we go that like, we're always dreaming and demanding more and finding new ways to find more and more and more, yeah. whether that's like the renovation because like, well, and you yes. see that people don't have the critical capacity to weigh this information mm -hmm. tsunami. Mm -hmm. You know, we see that with everything lately, conspiracy theory, beliefs and, and uh, just this drive to, you know, have the good life and have everything. And that, to me, is part of this whole thing that needs to be put in at the lower levels is, you know, a conscious person has the facilities and capacity for critical analysis, you know, and, and questioning, you know, which used to be a really kind of important thing and now kind of seems to not be. The things that people question are all the wrong things. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Expand well, on that. I love that statement. I can't wait to hear what you say. Well, it's like this whole distrust of the system, right? Or that somebody is doing something in secret to screw you. You know, like... Lizard people. Lizard people, Bill, Bill Gates, <laughs> yeah. like Trudeau. Like the, the, everyone wants to, like somehow wants to believe that all these weird things are going on. And, and so they're, they're questioning, you know, the orthodoxies of, of people who are trying to do good because they believe that there's a vast conspiracy of people trying to take something away from them. Mm -hmm. That just seems to be everywhere right now. And I'm like, oh my God, like, yeah, we used to question things, but we used to question authority and corporations. And now everyone just lets corporations roll right, right over. And they're blaming the, the government. The dialogue, the they're blaming the government. Corporations own the, the government. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like people should be calling out the corporations, not the government. Like, make the corporations. They're the ones who lobby and have the power to create the laws in the first place. Exactly. The governments are, are servants of, of the them, of the corporate corporate stuff. And we've, we've created that system. And our complacency by not getting in the way of it perpetuates it. So our questioning is just really weird sometimes. It's like, okay, you know, we, there's a way for us to use our voices better for sure. And it's kind of not just by changing governments like we change underwear, you know, just because all of a sudden we think that whoever is there is like doing something. But you can even have an idiot 
running the government and no one will actually look at what the government's doing, which is the important thing. They're just all caught up in the person and the personality and what's being said about that person. And well, that's everything. like Trump and Boris Johnson. It's like all that to a T. Everybody wants to hate like the symbol, like the person symbolizing it. But like what's actually happening comes down to like much more nuanced discussions and people. And like, I don't totally. know, I... I'll entertain like a good conspiracy theory from time to time, you know, like I'll, I'll listen to it. I'll be like, okay, like just for entertainment. Just, I mean, you know, sometimes it's pretty fun, but then I always have to come back to the thing where it's like, okay, so you think the government's doing this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But then it's like, have you ever filed your taxes? Have you ever tried to mail something? Have you ever like been on the government website trying to find information? Like what makes you think that like this massive organization basically is able to like do the, the, these horrible despicable things that like you're talking about doing it's like there's like nothing runs smoothly nothing is like organized or easy it's like a gong show <laughs> like you think it's capable of like pulling the the wool over 95 percent of of the country's eyes and you're like the one who can see through it it's like no well it's like uh climate deniers right you know, you have 10,000 scientists with 10 bazillion pages of right. information and Buddy sitting on the toilet scrolling through, mm. you know, his conspiracy websites thinks he knows more. Right. Well, and that's the thing, too, because so many of, especially pertaining to, to climate, there's so many things where science as a community, it's like an accepted fact, and then you move on. Like, well, it's also self-regulating. Well, and you don't, see, <laughs> you don't see papers out there anymore proving that, that gravity exists. Because we've established... Or doesn't exist. It's a fact, right, <laughs> yeah. right. But like, I'm, what I'm saying is that like, once science overall has kind of like established something as a fact, the studies go on to show other things and, and impacts to that, you know? It's like, so right. you have people out there who... Right, gravity exists. Right. How does it work? Let's find out. How right. does it work on smaller planets? And that's kind of where science yeah. is with climate change. It's like, we've established that climate change exists so how does it work in this watershed and how does it work over here and what are the impacts of like species moving and stuff and, and yeah what does it mean if all the permafrost melts at once right right <laughs> but you still have people focusing on whether or not climate change exists and it's like yeah, we're past that i know yeah um uh, you had a little psa oh yeah well so this, this is orange hawkweed right which is I don't know. You see it in ditches and along the side of the road all the time, right? And everyone likes it. They think it's like devil's paintbrush or something like this. But it's invasive and it shouldn't be here. And it tends to take over entire roadsides and ditches. And so there's so much of it, no one thinks about doing anything about it. Right. And they won't because it's pointless and it grows from rhizomes underground and stuff. However, nobody wants this to get into the alpine where it'll mess up all the right. wildflower meadows. And so people are pretty vigilant about keeping orange hawkweed from going out of the valley. So it's an interesting sort of control management scenario where no one gives a rat's ass if it's in a ditch or along the side mm. of the road. But if anyone sees, anyone who knows, sees this going up a hiking trail or up a mountain bike trail, the alarm bells go off. And this is from Oregon to mm. BC, where they're definitely trying to keep this stuff hmm. out of the Alpine. And one of the ways they do that is cleaning your boots, cleaning your mm -hmm. bikes, and just having people recognize it. Hey, that's orange hawkweed. 
I shouldn't be up here. Right. Yeah. I've seen so many people like pick little bouquets and stuff with, with foxglove in it, which is like a beautiful plant. It is but gorgeous. Deadly, deadly toxic too. Right. Do they not even know that? Probably not. <laughs> but um, it's one of those things. It's just, it's not, not thought about, you know? Shifting baselines. We see it everywhere. We think it's naturalized. We think it's normal, and we just there's a incorporate it heart into our lives. Medicine that it's made from foxglove. A heart medicine. Digitalis. I didn't know that. Yeah, it can kill you. Well, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah, there, there are toxic plants that are invasive. Giant hogweed. Mm. It burns your skin. Like there right. is, there's a burn right there. Right. Okay, that's what happens, folks. How long ago was that? Two weeks. Well, that was that was cow parsnip. That wasn't even, that was its its cousin, you know. So that right there is a burn from giant hogweed. Yeah, and it's the it's like the acid in it, isn't it? That burns it. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, phytotoxin, which is super interesting because it's only toxic when it's exposed to sunlight. Yeah, UV rays. Yeah, so you get it on you, and then you know maybe you got a shirt sleeve on here, mm-hmm. and nothing happens. But then two days later, you're in short sleeves and. <laughs> Blister, right. UV activated chemicals, bad stuff. Right, and it's it's a you so know, it's like solar res for surfboards, but of a poison or of a toxin that burns your skin and scars you for life. Exactly, which is a evolutionarily kind of cool adaptation to keep critters from eating you. That is. <laughs> It's kind of badass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you take away the whole like invasive species thing, it's kind of kind of kind of rad. Yeah, yeah, and it's fine when when it's in its native range where you might find one plant or two plants, you know. But here, it'll grow in a giant clump, and some kids will ride their bikes through it, and then they'll all go home, and they'll have giant burns on them. And man, you don't want to get it in your eyes, right? And I thought as a kid, like growing up, like nettles were bad. A little salic acid bit, like exactly that stung. But yeah. if that had left scars, Nettles, poison ivy, right? Yeah, no, this stuff leaves scars. Um, okay, so I have a couple of questions here from the audience. No, just <laughs> ones that are kind of random, more random, but I thought I'd, I they'd be good um, okay. conversation points. What is your most hated invasive plant? Okay, like if you had to pick your favorite plant to hate. Right, and it's not real hate because you just loathe it and you want to destroy it and yeah, get it out everywhere. And it's like anyone who has a bio- biological background has a grudging admiration for it, an invasive plant because it's just doing its thing, and it's like, wow, you're really successful at this, aren't you? Good for you. Yeah, good for you. Um, Son of a bitch, get but, out of here. Yeah, I, uh, I really, really have come to obsess about burdock. At first, I I didn't like it because it was kind of like everywhere, and I could like physically see how it was prohibiting other plants from growing. And of course, you get burrs on you, you know, and they're really hard to get off. Burrs are those little spiky balls. They're like Velcro balls that stick to your clothing. They were the inspiration for Velcro, actually. Right. They're a pain in the butt, and. But then I found, started to find out all this other stuff about them as I was, you know, spending the last few years taking them up. This invasional meltdown aspect of them has really made me dislike seeing burdock patches. Because when I see a burdock patch now, it's like, I'm not just seeing burdock. I'm like, oh my God, there's, there's a place where there's invasive earthworms, slugs, snails, 
burdock and other plants from Eurasia, you know, all perpetuating each other in a giant hellish kind of eco meltdown. This little cancerous bit so, of land. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I work pretty hard to keep them out of my neighborhood and, uh, and clean them up so that, you know, bats don't get caught in them. Which happens. Really? Yeah, bats can get caught on the burrs. Oh, then bears, they're like way down. Bears can get them all on their snouts and stuff, and that's really not pleasant. So, yeah, cleaning up burdock. I guess if you clean up as much burdock as I do, someone would look at you and go, that guy is, like, obsessed. He must hate that stuff. So, there you go. Interesting. I've always had a particular disdain for um, English ivy. Oh! <gasps> Yeah. Another one. English insidious. Ivy, it's insidious. And the thing, the, I think the roots of it too is like it's it's an ornamental thing. So it's not like um, things like blackberry or foxglove where people brought it over not knowing and it just spread. English ivy exists because people think it looks pretty in gardens. And they put it on everything oh, on purpose. It's horrible. Yeah. My dad would hate me for saying this because he, he loves it and he's got it all over. But uh -huh. like, and it's roots to like colonization it it's just like this english buildings. thing bringing bringing over this plant that looks regal and reminds you of the queen back home and so yeah. you're putting it in your garden and then it takes over it covers trees and it climbs it climbs trees it suffocates yeah. them and uh we had a, a restoration event out in um tofino a few weeks ago months ago now um and like i we were pulling invasives so it was mostly focused on japanese knotweed but i found some ivy and i was like oh i gotta get this ivy out and i started pulling it and pulling it and pulling it and it's got all these runners ended up in this wetland i'm like covered in mud sweating profusely just ripping out all this ivy trying to do everything it's like you you pull one thread and oh, before know. you know it it's like everywhere places you didn't even see you and pull one thread and before you know it the entire ecosystem unravels right and it's dangerous <laughs> when you're pulling it from the trees too because then you got all these like branches and widow makers up there and i'm yeah. like oh, i should probably just cut this one but there's a whole crew of people uh who are dedicated to removing english ivy in stanley park yeah. And they've done a good, pretty good job. And there there are so many places all over Vancouver Island, like Eastern Vancouver Island, I've seen like just driving on the highway, you can see where it's just taken over. Again, some vacant plot of land where nobody no, but you is can also taking see ownership it coming for it. Out of people's yards, mm -hmm. coming up the fence on their side, going over the fence, and then down outside, up a tree, down a ditch. And you just, it's like, it's like watching liquid, you know. Right, plant matter being poured out me into of the environment. Terminator Two, the metal guy, who yeah, just like slipping, like and turn into like, a puddle of those, metal. Why are those people not? You know, why are they not like keeping that crap in their yard? Right, because from a containment perspective, it's pretty easy. You just like clip it to the roots, and exactly. then and then it kills the rest of it. But as soon as it's able to like reroot and continue to spread, and precisely, yeah, as soon as it touches the ground somewhere else, it puts down suckers and. But it's such a shame too, because like, especially on, you know, places I've seen like these amazing, like coastal Douglas fir ecosystems where you have these big, amazing Douglas firs and they're being just slowly choked out by this ivy that's yeah. just fully surrounded the trunk and up in the branches. And now that they're, they're just, it's terrible. Like what a sh terrible way for a tree to go. Yeah. It's awful. Anyway, that's my most hated one. I'm down with that. I can see it. I can see it. Do you have any? Would you like to say anything on the link between human colonization and plant colonization? Well, obviously we. Oh, you mean as humans as an invasive species, or the fact that we take plants everywhere we go? M more of that, not necessarily and plants, we change but animals too. Animal, we take well, 
Yeah. I mean, one of the premises of the book was that this is not a new phenomenon. You know, humans were packing invasive heat, so to speak, when we marched out of Africa. We had fleas and lice and probably seeds and things. And everywhere we've gone, we've brought our the baggage of our existence with us, the flora and fauna associated with us. And the baggage and, of our existence. I really like that. And in fact, one of the reasons that invasives are got to be such a problem in many new world uh, places like um, Australia and North America is because of a, you know, a purposeful bent of people wanting to bring things from their native lands and establish them. There were acclimatization societies that released birds in North America. Like pigeons? Oh, like pigeons, starlings, sparrow, English sparrows. English sparrows is a funny one because everyone's like, English sparrows, uh, they're everywhere. Yeah, they are. And they're not even English. They were introduced to England. Oh, really? Yeah from the Caspian area. And so they became so ubiquitous. This is shifting baseline syndrome that by the time Shakespeare was writing about them, they were the English sparrow, but they weren't even from England, but they're on every continent now. And so are starlings and so are pigeons. And well, the first pigeon to come yeah, to North yeah. America was, um, I believe he was like a prince or something in Quebec came from France brought over. No doubt. But yeah, there's that there's rabbits, um, trout, Oh, brown trout, brown like, trout, rainbow trout. And the fact that people would introduce us just to have something to fish for that reminded them of home instead of embracing like the gorgeous cutthroat trout we have here, you know? It's or the brook, the native brook brooks, trout. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And then all the transpositions from west to east, you know, people brought bullfrogs from eastern North America to the west so that they could get rich quick on bullfrog legs. And of course, that never happened because it was a dumb idea to begin with. And all, the, <laughs> But then all the bullfrogs got away and now they've completely destroyed every aquatic ecosystem that they live in because they eat everything. They are and beasts too. Those, yeah. those frogs are horrible. I find that to be such a funny human thing how we, we the royal we of humanity, um, goes to a new place to go go somewhere new to try something new to like look for a better existence find a new way forward whatever but you're just like we always want to bring something from home that reminds us of home wherever it was we came from whether it's our food um song dance like there's just like all these things that we like always bring with us to always stay where mentally where we were mm-hmm. instead of just embracing the change and going with it and, and going somewhere new and like I mean, it's a lot easier nowadays, I feel like, to do that because things are more established in a sense. But like back in the day, I can understand where it's like if you were going on a two-month boat ride to the other side of the world and you didn't know what was waiting for you over there, That's you'd, right. you'd take your staples. You had no idea. Right. So you didn't know what you needed. And you did think about, uh, you know, the mental comfort of having something that could tie you to your existence. But you're right. Now... We know what we know everything about where we're going when we go, and we still are kind of like that. And and we should be way more open to just embracing whatever is there. I agree. I agree. Couldn't, well, couldn't agree more, Ross. We'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, so there's a really common argument that I've heard. Um, 
similar to all these things, similar to climate change, to logging. Um, but with faces, invasive species, it's kind of like, oh, well, these species are just better at competing than others. And this is all part of evolution. So what? Like, what's the big deal? Shouldn't we just like let these, let it do what they're doing? And what would be your response to something like that? Well, my response to that would be no, but it would be qualified because, of course, it's never just one thing and it depends. So as we were kind of hitting on a few times in this talk, there are species that are de facto problems that are hijacking ecosystems, making ecosystems dysfunctional for all the other organisms that exist here. So in that respect, there's a problem. So then the question becomes, okay, is it a problem worth solving? And if so, why? Um, a lot of my thinking and a lot of other folks thinking is that because we're responsible for the problem, that we have a duty and a responsibility to do what we can to either alleviate the problem Right, write it or prevent it from happening again. And I think that applies to like everything. Logging is a perfect example. Like we know the problems logging causes. Don't we have a responsibility to not perpetuate them and to keep them from happening further? And, and to clarify on that, it's not necessarily logging. It's just the certain practices of logging we're using that are dictated by this economic system that we've built. Right. Yeah, that's what like, I mean. Like, like clear-cut logging. Clear-cut logging makes no sense. Right. We could be doing it in a much better, different way, but it's not economically viable because we've set our system up to only... To be so... To, to have the cheapest goods possible. Exactly. Yeah. And so going back to that invasive species thing, but there there is a large faction out there on the margins of invasion science, invasion biology, whatever you want to call it, who are like, well... Humans are part of nature, and humans move this shit around. So, it's a natural process. So, any mess that we've made, we just kind of like, that's part of evolution. So, let's just leave it. And that seems like a very impoverished point of view <laughs> to me somehow. Kind of throwing your hands up, sort of t not taking responsibility. I mean... There are some aspects of that that are true, but we're also imbued with this kind of crutch and insight of self-awareness. And I think that uh, the fact of self-awareness in humanity changes the nature of that relationship with the environment somewhat. It's not just like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, we did that, so what? You know, we're we're uh, an organism on the planet, so whatever we do and whatever we feel like doing, to hell with it. It's 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 to me that's kind of irresponsible, especially because we have so much capacity for knowledge and we have so much knowledge about the problems that things can cause. So, I mean, if anything, it's like showing empathy for like the native species that you know are like kind of being eradicated by that and can't compete the same way. Right. So it's like, give like, them a fighting our, chance. It, it's like, it's like ignoring our kinship. Mm. 
with things, mm-hmm. ignoring ignoring the very re- relationship that is being invoked by people saying, well, we're part of nature, so just let it go. It's like, no, uh, but we are part of nature, and so we can't let it go because, you know, we're, we're aware of... Uh, of where we could be in this nexus and we're we're not in we're not in a good spot <laughs> right and I, but that it's such a difficult thing too i feel like for humans to do because it's really easy to go out and pull a bunch of burdock and ivy and whatever to pull a bunch of invasives because there's there's a certain disconnect as like a quote-unquote conscious sentient being a you know charismatic megafauna to like a plant thing that we assume doesn't have any feelings or consciousness or anything we can just like easily rip it out and it's like okay whatever that's invasive doesn't belong there but as soon as it's a living thing it becomes a lot trickier and like from my own experience i would play this game um by an animate thing because right. plants are living <laughs> sorry I, i'm sorry it's too uh yeah an animate thing um i would play this game Oh, and it's so hard, like morally, it was with the black invasive slugs, the Eurasian slugs, and biking on the paths in Squamish, like in the spring when it's warm and wet, like they come out, and I don't know why they're always kind of on the path, but I would try to hit as many as I could. Oh, the black ones. The black ones. Yeah. And it's like, it's fucked up and like hearing them squish and I would feel so bad sometimes, but it's like, they're invasive. They're not supposed to be there. Same thing with rats. I've had to use like rat traps and it's like the rat trap doesn't work and it doesn't necessarily kill it humanely. And I hear the rat scurrying and like screaming and yelping. It's like, it's horrible as like, you know, to, oh, yeah. to feel the empathy for that, but then to also see the bigger picture and be like, that rat is killing native birds and is like, is shouldn't be here because it's invasive. And it's like, exactly. And I kill, I kill one rat. I probably saved a hundred birds. One rat, a hundred birds. On an island, like in Haida Gwaii, yeah, for sure. That because that's all they eat. They're going to, from nest to nest and ripping into every egg. And but anyway, it's, but it's hard. To, I know it's what hard you mean. to do it's that. It's really it's hard to to kill animals like that. You want to you want to do it in a humane way. You want to euthanize them. Like I went out with these guys who were hunting bullfrogs around Victoria. They were freaking using spears and and all this other like and I'm like and then there was a the woman I was with she was putting them in a bucket of water a solution that had an anesthetic in it and the frog just went to sleep and and was unconscious and then they froze them and sent them to university biology labs right to be dissected and stuff yeah whereas yeah. these other guys are like you know they're spearing right. the frog and I'm and they're not dying right. That's like, just like a horrible way to go. No, it's just horrible. And so, yeah, there's, I mean, these are be, these issues are being uh, wrestled with everywhere, you know? I mean, God, Burmese pythons, beautiful, massive, five-meter animals that weigh 200 kilos, you know? These kings of the jungle in Malaysia, they just happen to be in the wrong spot in Florida because some idiots decided to... to uh, you know, have a breeding facility for pythons that got blown apart by a hurricane or something, however they got there. And, but they're destroying very quickly the Everglades. There are no native mammals, literally, left in the Everglades because there's so many pythons. The pythons are just eating them. And so it's like, they've got to, they've got to go. You've got to eradicate them. You know, you've got to find a way to do it humanely, but you got to do it. I mean, I would, ha- I would, I, I would have a trouble running over slugs too. 
And so that's why I, <laughs> I mean, and that's just no, me that's try, I'm saying, trying to make a game out of that's it. That's why of. I'm saying, okay, we'll never get rid of all the slugs, right? We can't. So it doesn't matter how many you kill, but we could, we could get rid of some of them. We could make it harder for them to exist here by getting rid of burdock and getting rid of other plants from their, their native range so that the native slug species, the banana slugs have a fighting chance of, of surviving. And so in some instances, it kind of has to be done that way. It's like, okay, how can we draw down something that's supporting this animal that shouldn't be here? Um, so that it's just at like a low level and then the native species can persist. It's like lampreys in the great lakes. No one's ever going to hundred percent get rid of lampreys, but we spend $75 million a year between the United States and Canada on lamprey control, which is largely lampricide, a chemical that is put into breeding streams to kill the eggs. Hmm. And we keep them at a low enough level that the great lakes can still have lake trout and whitefish and all the freaking introduced salmonids that they put in there that are also invasive, but huge sport fishing, uh, economy. And so that's humane ish, you know, and it's controlling it. it it's a cost money, but you know, it allows some functionality of the ecosystem and some, phase space for native species right. to operate in. How are um, people killing Burmese pythons in a humane way in the Everglades? Because, uh, I mean, I've seen videos in that. They're not doing it humanely. They're, they're not. Shooting, well, the most humane way would be just to sh shoot it between the eyes, like when you catch it. Um, and maybe, maybe that's what's happening. But uh, they've been trapping them. And then I think they kill them by injection if it's part of the USGS trapping program. Right. But there's, but it's not because it's also private because they have like... Oh, they have these hunts and stuff. Right. And people get rewarded for how many they bring in. Yeah. And those people, you know, I mean, it's Florida, right? They're probably using every <laughs> weapon known to mankind. So... Picture guy in a sleeveless leather vest but, with a machete. Yeah. But even though those guys, like, a lot of them are hunters and I don't think that they, like animals to suffer you know i think they'll kill them as humanely as possible and quite frankly as crude as it sounds a bullet to the brain is probably the best a lot of those snakes can hope for so i have one final question for you that's kind of derived from this just because i want to get your opinion on it it's not invasive technically okay huge impact i like how you saved all the tricky well, this existential one, questions for I just, the end. I just thought of this one as we were talking about rats and slugs, but um, what's your opinion on cats? Oh, I was thinking about cats when you were talking about oh. that thing. Oh, yeah. Kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Burn, burn it right down. I mean, it's tough. No. I, okay. Here, here's the thing. People shouldn't let their cats out. No. And if they Outdoor do... Outdoor cats they, should not be a thing. The, the, if they do, it should be in an enclosed yard. But even then, you know, like my friends in Vancouver, like they have a bird feeder in their yard and they have a cat that they let out all the time. And that cat spends, I swear, 95% of its time around that bird feeder 
trying to get birds, which it occasionally does, and squirrels. Cats should not be out. I had experience with this when I was a kid. I had cats come into my yard and kill my pet turtles. I was devastated. And they just kill them. They don't do anything They kill with them. them for fun. That's, they kill them for fun. It's sport. And, you know, I know you asked me this question because you know the numbers. Yes, a raindrop did fall. No, I was actually oh. watching the hummingbird doing its uh, mating dance here. I thought I got a raindrop. Maybe it was bird Look poop. at this hummingbird. It's just... Have you seen that when they do that? They go way up and they go... And like dive bomb and then go up again. So no. it's their mating dance. It's oh, that's pretty, fascinating. It's really cool. But yeah, he's he's gone now. But well, the trees are doing the hula, which means that storm is incoming. But I know you asked me this about cats because you must know the numbers. That the scientific studies have shown three to four billion small mammals, birds, lizards, and amphibians are, are killed in North America every year by pet cats and feral cats. In Australia, several small marsupials have been or gone extinct as a result of predation by feral cats. They're, they have a different problem there. Here, it's mostly pet cats. In Australia, they have a huge population of feral cats. And so the, the trapping and eradication of feral cats through poisoning is a... It's, going, it, it's, it's a parallel thing. There's, so there's people there like, yeah, I get rid of the feral cats, but don't touch my pet cat. You know, and I'm still going to let my pet cat outside. And you're like, well, that's the same thing, you idiot. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, feral cat populations are a disaster and need to be addressed, and they are being addressed in some places. It's a very different... cats can breed so much. Like, they, their oh. gestation period is so quick. It's and a they very have difficult litters. thing yeah. for people to deal with because like, we know a cat as a certain thing. Right. And they're super cuddly and cute, and there's so many videos on YouTube and TikTok that we just... They're they're adorable little animals when they're like indoor animals, but yeah, like outdoor cat owners, like it's the most irresponsible thing I think you could possibly ever do. I had this roommate in Australia when I lived down there, just like south of Melbourne in like Torquay area, and she had this cat. Fucking oh, I feel I look, I look back on those days and I feel like irresponsible for not just killing that cat myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because, like, she had stories of neighbors trying to poison this cat when I moved in. I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, it's just a cat. I didn't quite understand it. But yeah. in, like, my, like, four or five-month time in that house, the cat brought in so many endangered birds, um, little endangered oh. shorebirds. It brought in a, a baby possum one time that I, like, tried to, like, nurse, and it was just it, just to kill. Like, that's the thing. Like, cats are fucking psychopaths. If a cat was a human being, nobody would like that person. Like, Well, they'd be locked up. They'd be a psych... Yeah, it, but it's... Uh, it's ridiculous to me. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. And I mean, domesticated cats had a utility when right. back in the day, you know, that they, they were domesticated so that they would kill mice and rats around grain storage areas in ancient Egypt, you know, back when they were starting to make bread and beer. Right. That, Is that where they came from? I mean, yeah. I knew they were from Egypt, but that's yeah. kind of... that was. The that, thinking. That was the thinking. And, and, then, and, and they did a good job. And even obviously. in farmhouses and stuff, like catch the rats and it, keep the rats. Exactly. And, so right. for, you know, centuries and centuries, that had been the thing. But then they became, like so many other things, uh, just an urban prop, essentially. And unfortunately, they still have those behavioral instincts and capabilities and urges, and they don't work in the 
world where we have a biodiversity crisis. Well, and it's it raises so many more um, moral and ethical issues because then people are like, well, I want my cat to be outdoors. And it's like, okay, well then declaw them. Oh, but declawing is immoral because then they can't get away from predators. It's like, well, if you want to have an outdoor cat, it should be declawed because then they can't catch as often. I know they still can, but but yeah. then then you're taking away the ability of a cat to like climb and get away from dogs or something maybe. But it's like. At the just end of the day, it's like a trickle-down morality that shouldn't be an issue if you just address it at the root, which it, is like, it, don't have an outdoor cat. It's immoral to let your cat out, <laughs> to wander freely. Right. You know, because you know, you can pretend it's not, but you know that it is potentially killing innocent animals. Innocent things. That aren't even being predated, like, or eaten, you know? And it's, so there's a more, I think there's a moral line there that needs to be addressed i actually have seen a, quite a few more cats on leashes lately yeah I've which seen that i too. thought was cool mm -hmm. and uh cool for like what it is you know yeah i gotta say you know i'm not a cat fan and every time i hear about a coyote den being found with cat collars in it i kind of do a little silent <laughs> cheer <laughs> yes but, but i also i do that because i'm like yeah those were cats that were wandering around like you know that that that's that's they kind of got embedded in that urban ecosystem predator thing and they got scorched but then i also think oh that was somebody's little fluffy that little never fluffles. came home right and i'm like but that's their fault the stupid idiot for letting the cat out and that's the other reason for maybe not letting cats out is it's an, it's a danger to them they get killed on roads they get eaten by coyotes you know it's not fair right I like the way you brought that around. They get, you know, taken by giant sea eagles. <laughs> <laughs> so this actually brings me, this one's kind of morbid. It brings me to one more question. This is one of my favorite icebreakers to ask somebody when I'm just getting to know them. So would you rather? It's, it's morbid, but um, All right. I feel like it, it pairs nicely. Um, you're out in the woods here in BC. Nobody's around. Um, you are going to die. Like that's, you're going to die. There's no way out of that. Would you rather it be from a bear mauling, a pack of wolves, or a cougar? Cougar. You take cougar. Yeah, I mean. They go right for your neck. Yeah. And try and snap it right away. I Bear, okay. bear would be terrible. I would not want the bear. Because bears would eat you alive. But I've just seen too many cats like play with half-dead things just for the fun of it, just for the sport okay, of killing. Well, the, my, I don't want to be I'll on the receiving my, end of that. I'll give you my reasoning for it, which yeah. is that the, the cougar would be attacking you in a 100% predatory way with the intent of killing. killing you and eating you. The bear, no. So that would be messy. Um, and because it would likely be a defensive thing. Wolfpack, no thanks. They like disemboweling their <laughs> prey and hobbling them, right? Like, you know, they yeah. come in, little bites here, little bites there, rip, rip them open until they can no longer flee, and then they all, <clears throat> they're all on them. Yeah. What a dumb question. <laughs> I don't know. I've always responded with the wolves. And my reasoning... You want to be torn to pieces? No, I don't want to be, but it's like, this is the would you rather. Like, would you... People get mad at asking would you rather because it's like, I don't want any of that. It's like, that's the point. You have to choose something you don't like. But I'd rather have my neck snapped 
in an instant. And I think a cougar is the best chance of having that happen. Sure. It's the best chance of it. But again, like I've just seen too many cats play with half dead little bird things or toys that they just, where they, they jump on something till it stops moving and then they walk away and then it moves again. Then they jump on it. I don't think cougars do that. Maybe. I don't know. I I feel like. No, no. The risk is higher. And like, I just don't want to end up in that where it's like, yeah, a bear would be miserable. With cats, it's a vestigial behavior. So it's been co-opted to amusement. Right. That's not the case with a cougar. cougar. No, they don't play with their deer. They just fucking snap their necks and then eat them. But what if it was like a threatening thing where it's like you they you were just attacked because you were near like their cubs or something. Then it's like not necessarily motive to like kill to eat. It's just like kind of Okay, well now that's what I'm saying. Like, and so when when I've justified no, the no, wolves no. Now, in my head, now you're you're like giving different uh, <laughs> different contexts to it. You can't bring context into it. It's just got to be this, this, or this. And I'm like, I'll take the cooker. Yeah, I respect that. And just just to give my reasoning for the wolves before we end this, okay. just, just because I don't want people to think I'm a psychopath who wants to be ripped apart by a pack of wolves. I just have had my experiences with cats playing with things. So it's like, I don't want part of that. I don't want part of bear death. That would be horrible. Um, but with wolves, I feel like there's so many of them. They're kind of like a pack of raptors. Like they come at you from all angles. I feel like you'd be so hyper-focused on fighting off one that another one would bite you and your adrenaline would be pumping. It'd be like, it'd be like a brawl where it's like you would, yeah, you'd die and it'd be miserable and you'd probably but get But it would be a fight, a fight to the death. Yeah, but like, and at least you'd, you'd be in it. You'd be in it. Okay. I, all right. You I know? can see that. I respect that. It's like when you when you have traumatic things happen to you, like your body shuts down, you know, like you're so pumped full of adrenaline. Yeah. So if you don't feel it, you, you just be like high till you die. That's how I've justified it. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I'm yeah. glad you didn't add sharks and pythons in there. No, that's a very, it's a very <laughs> Cascadian land-based question, yeah. but I, I could probably think of something for the water too. No, I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, sweet. Thanks for popping on and talking to me about invasive species here. Yeah, Appreciate a, that. It's been a pleasure. Um, do you have anywhere where people can go or any insight or advice for where people can, what people can do to help um, control or, or prevent in, invasive species of yeah. all kinds from coming in? Yeah, for sure. Because uh, uh, one good thing is that a lot of invasive species um, management is very grassroots and community oriented and almost every community has a invasive species organization or a regional one that they're part of. So find out what that is and go to their website and they usually have a huge amount of, uh, of material there that about, you know, what, what plants are invasive in your area and what you can do to help prevent new invasions or deal with ones that already exist. And in this area, Sea to Sky Invasive Species Council definitely have all those resources on their website and lots of links to other stuff too. So, Yeah, and I think there are a lot of... um, There are also a lot of different grassroots organizations that do like community days where it's like community weed polling or community... Like I've I've seen different events like that where it's super easy to get involved. Broom bashing. Broom bash. It's called a broom bash. Cut broom and bloom. So when they're all flowered, they get out there and they cut them so that they don't form seeds. Yeah. That, that's one kind of key tenet is like, if you got some invasive problems, cut them down while they're flowering before they form seeds. You don't want them to keep contributing to the seed bank. Mm-hmm. Is there a best way to pull broom? No, broom is a 
you got to cut it and then you, and then you cut it again and you cut it again until the root is exhausted or you inject it with glyphosate. Okay. But it's a direct, it's not something people should do at home on their own. It's the th a thing that invasive species managers do where it's just injected directly into the plant so that it doesn't go anywhere else except into its root. Well, like when I've been walking like logging roads and stuff and I'll see smaller broom plants that haven't gone to flower or seed yet, I'll usually just like pull them up and then like leave them in the middle of the road to dry out, but pull the root and everything out. Yeah, that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. It won't reroot. Yeah. Cool. But if you did that with burdock, it would reroot. Right. If and, you did that and with Japanese knotweed. You could cut up Japanese knotweed in a blender oh. and get ten thousand Japanese knotweed plants out of that. That's insane. Fingernail size stuff. But from a bio biological and each one perspective, could destroy your house. It's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. They grow through. They create cracks in the basement foundations and pry it all apart. Right. Pipes. Everything. That's a. Oh, I mean, I guess we're we're just on a ramble now too. But that's always an interesting thing that I've thought with not necessarily invasive plants, but plants in general. Like people love the way they look, but as soon as they're around their house, they don't like them because. You know, plants' roots will get into cracks and they force the cracks apart. They'll tear into foundation. They tear sidings off buildings when you, like, let it grow enough. But, like, plants are just... Certain plants. Certain plants, sure. Yeah. But, you know, they're just kind of doing what they do. And it's all kind of parts of succession. It's like in the real world, if they came across a big rocky thing like that, it would be a rock that they would kind of grow into to find it, to seek some water. Then as those roots grow, it pries apart the rock. It's just that in this case, it's a foundation that you've built. Yeah. So you can't get mad at the plants for just doing what they're doing. No, but you can be aware that, that that's totally. very likely going to happen if you have certain kinds of plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, great. Anyway, cool. Thanks for coming oh, on. Did I ever mention to you that your your beloved Douglas fir is invasive in so many other countries? Invasive in other countries? Yeah, because people <laughs> brought it there because it's such a bloody, right. beautiful, noble tree. Well, it's great for it's wood invasive production. invasive in Argentina. It's invasive in New Zealand, I think. Isn't that funny? Because that's another thing is we don't even realize that the stuff that's native to here is... It's been transported somewhere right. else. And that is interesting invasive. to think about. It is. Well, and like what Cryptomeria japonica, the Japanese cedar, is actually from China, and that's like that's the tree that they grow in in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Douglas it's, firs, huh? Douglas firs, buddy. Because they're pretty. They're not the most. I guess the. It, I guess if the ecosystem's right. Well, but you know how good they are at exploiting certain types Sunny, of environments. dry soils. Yeah, yeah. and they do pry, they all pry rocks apart. Right, like, it's yeah. It's amazing what they can do. So they're good competitors, and they outcompete a lot of other trees in some of these these uh, exotic environments elsewhere. Well, and then you have to think, too, on like the time scales that you're working on, because Douglas fir are probably the youngest tree species around here in this part of the world. Like, mm -hmm. they're theoretically invasive depending on the scale that you look at like they migrated south from mexico um following the retreat of the glaciers like so well, they migrated back north yeah yeah. yeah yeah um well or they they could have existed in some of the refugia it's hard to know but the thing about douglas firs too is that they are prolific uh reproducers they produce a lot of seed and if there's no competition out there and that seed all germinates that's that's a pretty quick invasion. Good old Doug Furs. Just thought I'd throw that yeah. out there. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. It was well, great, man. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Right on. 
Yeah, a pack of wolves. You know, every time I hear that conversation, it makes me think about it again because he puts up a good argument for cougars. Like, I get it. I do. I just, I don't know. I'm a dog guy. I feel like a pack of wolves would be fitting. Anyway, thanks to everybody for tuning into this week's episode. Um, really appreciate having you here. If you enjoyed it, you can do me a solid by liking it up, leaving a good review, sharing around to your friends and family. And if you're enjoying these podcasts I'm making, as well as all the fun educational videos you find on social media that help to inform, educate, and inspire you about the world around us, you can help support their production by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature. As an independent passion project, this whole nerdy about nature thing relies solely on support from folks like you. So if you're enjoying what I'm doing, would really appreciate your support there. You can also check out nerdyaboutnature.com. I've got some stickers and shirts and merch and stuff you can get, which all helps to support this project as well. Um, so thanks to everybody for tuning into this week's episode. Looking forward to catching you here in a couple weeks to talk about this lovely world that we all share, you know, nature. What a beauty. Catch you soon. <laughs> <laughs>